0: But in Australia they were kind of clever because even though they had interest rates really low which would mean normally we'll expect you know people to incur a lot of debt a lot of money gets added to the economy at that point they put so many restrictions on the banks and on individuals being able to borrow that they can have low interest rates they can stimulate the economy but they can control inflation really really well with the regulatory measures and that i think is the clever thing that has set australia up for for success
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dashdot Insider, the auditory epicenter for passionate property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's episode, I was joined once again by Emil Pinder, and we talked about a wide number of things, but specifically related to the RBA's recent predictions of where they see the economy going, specifically that inflation will continue to decline, the economy will keep growing, unemployment will remain low, and wages and salaries will rise. We talked about monetary policy, we talked about economics, we talked about the property market, and we talked about how you you as an investor or a prospective or a desire or an ambitious investor can actually make the use, make the best use of this information and get ahead in the market. So if you want to know how you can win in the property market today and over the next couple of years, there's going to be a great episode for you. Lots of really good content in there. I really love it because I love talking about economics and stuff uh, and specifically how it relates to the real estate market. So for me, this was fun. And if you enjoy that kind of stuff too, you're going to enjoy it as well. And again, of course, if you like it, you probably know somebody else who'd like it. So make sure you share it with them. Help to spread the word. Really appreciate if you do that That's my only ask from you. And without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I will see you on the inside. Welcome back to Dash Insider. Joining me once again is Emil Pinder. We had such a good time last time. And we thought, man, let's do it again. Emil, welcome back. Thank you very much, Goose. Nice to see you again. What um, you, wanted to, you, you got very excited the other day when the RBA announced that they were pausing rates. But it wasn't really the, the pausing of the
0: rates that got your your excitement. And I th- let's dig into that. That's right. They came out with four announcements as well, or four, four predictions. And those predictions, I would say, broad brush, they paint a very, very rosy picture for property investors. Yeah. You know what is most interesting about that, right? So the, we'll talk about these four predictions,
1: right? the thing that fascinated me most is that those four predictions that the RBA made got almost no coverage the only thing that seemed to get media coverage was the RBA's pause rates uh, Australian borrowers given reprieve as Reserve Bank Reserve Bank pauses once again it's like yeah no that's cool I mean that is that was a key part of it but I think the big story has been missed and and I'm really keen to dig into this because and I uh, what I love about recording content and making content is that your opinions uh, exist in perpetuity. So, right or wrong, they're recorded and they're on the freaking internet. So,
0: uh, so I can do a retraction <laughs> later.
1: <laughs> no, no, but my, no, my my point is that the four predictions that the RBA has now come forth and said are pretty much the same things that I've been saying on this podcast since… That's like, true. That is …2020… Uh, since since 2021 when they started printing money, basically. Well,
0: we can't get too excited yet because they haven't come true yet. What we have is reinforcement of your existing ideas by the RBA. Now, that is true. Are the RBA... I haven't been proven correct yeah, yet. Are, yeah. are they... Yet- <laughs> But but at least you and uh, you and the RBA have <laughs> you're backing the same horse. Which I now. don't
1: know but I don't know yeah, but I don't know if like that is necessarily a good thing, because the RBA are wrong a lot of the time. So you've got to be careful saying, All right, yeah, look, the RBA said this and I've said this, it might be true, because the RBA has been wrong a lot. <laughs> We're gonna remember that too. They have
0: been wrong sometimes when it comes to some of their predictions. When it comes to their decision making, like I've got a lot of respect for the RBA. Um I've got some good mates who are into economics and and you know, we we chat, we drill into it. And they generally get their decisions absolutely spot on when you, when you consider what their brief is, right, what their remit is, um, stimulate the economy and control inflation, right? Those, those are the two core cool things that they need to do. And so they're always trying to tread that line so that they can control inflation, but not so much that it, it stifles the economy. And if they ever have to make a hard call, then they're always going to favor controlling inflation, Totally, and uh,
1: you know, I think the problem with Australians, and I'm going to tr- some people trigger warning. The problem with Australians is that we've had it, we've had it too good, and so what tends to happen is decisions get made, and things get a little, our our situations change, and we instantly start kicking and kicking and screaming, and we either we say that you know it, the RBA is doing the wrong thing, and interest rates shouldn't go up, and they shouldn't have done this, and they shouldn't have done that, and and like. Maybe there's an element of truth and all of that kind of stuff, but all you need to do is take a little look around. Take a look at some of the other countries and see how their central banks have managed their economies. Look at the US. Look at China. Not good. Like, there's a lot of economies out there that are not in a good state because they haven't had the same uh, monetary policy and fiscal discipline that's been shown by Australia. Australia inherently has a lot of advantages that a lot of the other countries don't. Like, we're an extremely resilient economy, economy and we can dig into that because actually if are going to point to support some of the statements that have been made, which we'll get to those in a second. But I think, like, people get in these momentary feelings of, like, this is all bad and the RBA is
0: bad because these things are bad. It's like, well, ostensibly it's not. Just, like, zoom out a little bit. Well, I think it comes down to one's attitude towards debt as well. And basically... When you take out a loan somewhere, you're doing it so that you've got some money. But let's say that um, taking on debt like that is essentially saying, I am going to spend more than I earn or I'm going to spend more than I have right now and there is an agreement in place that I'm going to pay it back later, which means some point in the future, I need to earn more than I spend so that I can pay it back. And, Can't reframe that. Yeah.
1: I don't see it as spending more money than I have now. I see it as taking future earnings and bringing them forward. And it's interestingly just a slight nuanced difference. It's like, well, I want to take my next five years or 10 years worth of earnings and bring them forward to today so that I can then get a greater return on those earnings. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely.
0: Now, what happens is let's say that they aren't necessarily earnings. Let's say that it is equity growth that has happened somewhere. And the reason that that can happen is because – uh, more money gets added to the economy so you can take out debt now and then more money gets added to the economy which means that your assets grow and so they can they can effectively pay off the debt that's the, that you originally had but what it means is as that kind of cycle happens again and again and again over time it, because of the way that people are sort of managing their debts they're sort of kicking that can down the down the road. And you do get a crunch at some point right so you know there should be a recession uh but the rba and the economy is robust enough to get through it without really really tightening and we've had it really good in australia for like the best part of two decades now without having had like a proper a proper recession ah longer i mean yeah i mean like since the early 90s since the the way that the rba has managed that i think has been excellent They've managed to get – see, the, the risk in where some countries get unstuck is, and, and they end up having to go through recessions is the amount of debt that accrues in the system. And effectively, debt is kind of like money printing because you think that if you go and you borrow money from the bank, that the bank had that money. But actually, they just write it. <laughs> they just say, yep, you can, you can have that debt. And so money gets created at that point. And if too much of that starts happening, then that's when you get inflation and then they then then a, a central bank needs to raise the interest rates. And when they raise the interest rates, that's when they can trigger a recession. But in Australia, they were kind of clever because even though they had interest rates really low, which would mean normally we'll expect you know, people to incur a lot of debt, a lot of money gets added to the economy at that point they put so many restrictions on the banks and on individuals being able to borrow that they can have low interest rates they can stimulate the economy but they can control inflation really really well with the regulatory measures and that i think is the clever thing that has set australia up for for success and that's why we've been able to avoid these recessions when the when the interest rates go low the banks come out and they say oh or or the the um regulators come out and like yeah, you want to you want to refinance your home loan. You're earning this much money. Fill out all of these forms in triplicate. How much are you spending on this? Show us receipts for that. And they really make it difficult to borrow money. And that I think was key in navigating the the situation. Probably about two three years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. So a couple of couple of interesting things. We've actually got to talk about the four predictions, by the way. we actually we get do, to those. We do need to get to the four predictions. But I want to point out a couple of things. Number one. Uh, Is that household debt to GDP, which is a really good measure of um, overall debt economic health, right? In a country, household debt to GDP ratio in Australia is the lowest level since roughly 2014, 2015, which is pretty crazy. Like it fell off a cliff. Like I remember back during kind of 2020, 2021, everyone was like, oh my God, the household debt to GDP ratio is up like 122% sort of thing. It's now down to about just around 112%. So it's, it's come down precipitously over that period of time, which is really, really interesting as interest rates have gone up. Yeah. Super interesting. It's,
0: it's super interesting to me because we had a long period where interest rates were really, really low, right, mm-hmm. through 2015, 16, 17. Interest rates were, were super low during all of that time, and that's normally when people are just accruing more and more and more debt. And, yeah. That happened. So, 20, so 2014
1: through to 2016, 17, That was the peak of household debt to to GDP. That's not debt to income, just to be clear. That's debt to GDP. So just a relationship difference. Yeah. But but nonetheless, that's a great sign of economic health because when most people get concerned is like, oh, everyone's loading up on debt and our economy becomes unstable. But when you've got manageable debt ratios within your economy, you generally speaking have a fairly healthy economy. And there's a lot of other things that point to a very healthy economy. One of the things that a lot of people get concerned about is, um, you know, inflation, interest rates, growth, and they think, oh, we can't continue to have this economy that keeps growing. Therefore, it must crash. There's this kind of underlying belief that there must be some great reset and all of this kind of stuff that has to happen. But fundamentally, our ability to have a continuously growing economy is specifically tied to productivity per, per, per capita. And, and
0: Australia to- is very, very good at productivity.
1: Very, very yeah, good. well, it sucked recently. That was what um, Philip Lowe was kind of saying. He's like, "I'd love to lower interest rates, but the productivity sucks." Basically, is what well, uh, don't you can't. That's not an exact quote, but you get the idea. He said, "Productivity needs to improve, otherwise, it'll be a moot point lowering the interest rates." So, the, let's get to the four. Let, let's get to the four um, predictions that made. Then we can kind of keep riffing on this because we're both obviously very passionate about it. The four predictions that the RBA made at the latest uh, RBA announcement, which was a couple of weeks back now. Currently, as we record this, it's mid to late October, uh, mid to late August, sorry. And so there probably will have been another announcement by the time this episode comes out. So just hence the ne- necessary timestamp so people don't get confused. It's 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 23rd of August. So the um, September RBA announcement hasn't happened yet. So we're talking about the August RBA announcement. They announced that interest rates were going to stay the same, but they predicted... That inflation would c- continue to decline, the economy would keep growing, unemployment would remain low, and wages and salaries would rise. Now, that's a pretty that's a pretty bold kind of position to hold.
0: Yeah, I'm impressed that they had the um, they had the stones to come out and say all of that. Um, partly, sometimes when a big institution like that says something like that, that can actually contribute to that happening, right? like if so so i think that's good um so if we go through them one by one inflation will continue to decline how how confident are you on that goose i'm very confident
1: on that like i th- i think so you, you and uh, oh god so I encourage anyone to go back over this podcast over the last couple of years because we've talked about a lot of this stuff intently. You know, the way that I think about property is from an economic basis. Like, that's how I think about the real estate market. You know, it's not like, hey, what's the best way to renovate your kitchen? I mean, sure, cool. But like, realistically, what we're talking about is how is money moving around in the economy? And how how does that specifically affect the asset class of real estate. Now, if you go back and you go, well, why did we have inflation? Because you've got to remember, like, we didn't really have inflation. The target inflation was two to three percent. And we never met our targets for, I can't remember now, like well over 10 years. Like it was it was ridiculous. Like they almost couldn't get the bloody economy to inflate. And in some inflation is a really good thing. You actually want some inflation. And so then when COVID hit and there was a, a, f- a flood of money into the economy, we had – now, there's many things that have caused inflation, but I think one of the key triggers was a supply-side constraint where everyone was trying to spend money, and, it, and we had supply constraints, i.e. shipping issues and all of that kind of stuff, which necessarily reduced the available supply of things for people to buy, which drove up the prices of things to, for people to buy, which meant that everything started to cost more, and that had a flow-on effect through. And so you have this cause – i.e. pump a heap this the cause was pump a heap of money into the economy and break the supply chain yeah, system reduce the amount the of things that people can buy yeah exactly yeah. like pump everyone full of money and then break the supply chain system so people can't actually buy stuff everything gets more expensive and then because it's th- because some things get more expensive everything gets more expensive because it just and it starts to have this you know you know echo chamber effect so to speak where it starts to grow and grow, and grow. but it's episodic and it's and it's you know and it's not it's not systemic and we've started to resolve a lot of the, a lot of those considerations supply chains have eased up things start to normalize and so you know it, you, it's in the way that i've always said is indigestion ah so we've got a bit of indigestion it's going to go up and it's going to come down and it's going to come normalize again and that's been my point of view for some
0: time right i think you're 100 right one thing that i find really interesting is trying to work out where the money actually goes like because not all prices across everything actually it goes up at the same rate. And, and, and so there is this idea of a personal inflation rate, depending on, um, or, or a personal uh, consumer price index, if you like, of like, what is your lifestyle? What do you want to get? If you already have a home, you're not interested in property investment, you only buy things that are very, very cheap to get, then your personal inflation rate might be very, very low. But if you are trying to get into assets, Um, and those assets are going up, then your personal inflation rate is quite high. And the the whole art, I think, of getting wealthy is being able to identify how inflation is non-uniformly distributed across different assets. So if a whole lot of money gets pumped into the economy, right, because the government prints or the banks are writing more loans, where does all of that money go? It's not like every single thing that anybody can buy goes up by 2% or 3% some things go up by a lot more like property and some things hardly move and the things that hardly move are sometimes difficult to identify and they're often relating to supply issues right like normally like onions for example they've generally apparently i haven't researched this myself so the comment section will tell us (laughs) they, they they things that are very very cheap and very very plentiful tend not to move around too much in price things that are rare or things that are the asset class of choice, which are like property is considered like an asset and it's a real store of wealth. And so if there's a whole lot more wealth getting added to the economy and people are storing that wealth in property, uh, sorry, if there's a whole lot, of, uh, whole lot more money being added to the economy and people are, they, they need to store that money somewhere. And if the, the storage vessel, if you like, is going to be property, then property prices are going to outpace inflation. Bingo. Uh, so
1: what really comes down to the ba- the most basic economic principle, which is supply and demand, right? And so uh, everything is an asset to varying degrees. If you could invest in, invest in onions, right, then that might not be a great asset class to invest in during a, a high inflationary period because the prices of onions might not rise as precipitously as inflation. But the, to the degree that there is d- demand for a product, and there is a deficit in supply is the degree to which those prices will inflate. Generally, generally speaking, there's a bit more nuance to it, to that as sort of market, market dynamic fundamentals and whatever, but the same thing goes with diamonds, but, but like petrol price is a really great example, right? Lots of people want to use petrol and oil. Lots of people want to use petrol and oil. In fact, a lot of people would argue that it's a necessity for them to be able to get to work and do their things. And so the inherent demand for that product is very high on a very continuous basis so if you damage the supply side of that equation guess what happens fuel prices go up now the supply side can be artificially constrained as well i.e Saudi Arabia could just say well we're just not going to export any barrels of oil right and then that can damage the supply side prices go up now with real estate for example there is an inherently high demand why people need places to live okay so there's an underlying necessary demand for real estate now there's an investment thesis but you to remember most properties are owned by people who live in them right investors only make up a small portion of the total total ownership of properties in australia the vast majority is by homeowners and so the primary demand in the real estate market is because people want to live somewhere now their wants needs and desires sometimes may blend and sometimes people need to live in a beautiful house with a big kitchen and stuff like that. they might not need that what they need is a freaking roof over the head but they desire it right they desire it and so you and also because real estate is such a good, good and, and trustworthy and safe and powerful asset class where you can reasonably apply leverage and get a great return on your money there's an inherently high demand side there and so When you have more money flowing into the economy, as you've said, and there's money sloshing around everywhere, and people are going, well, where am I going to spend my money? Am I going to spend it on onions, or am I going to spend it on houses, right? And they're thinking about, particularly as inflation starts to creep up, like a CPI inflation, where they're going, huh, fuel's going up, everything's going up, my purchasing power is going down on consumables, right? So a packet of chips might have cost me $1 one week and $2 the next week. I'm getting less chips for my dollars. So then they go well what how can I how can I preserve my capital and also how can I expand it now because inflation also drives up asset prices where there are where there's an inherent deficit in supply and demand i.e property that actually drives property prices up. So one of the best things you can do in an inflationary environment is get your cash into real estate. So and that's what we've been seeing happening as well. A lot and there's been a lot of talk. I know you want to get a word in there Edgeways, Emil, but there's there, there's been all this talk about the real estate market crashing and I've got massive inverted commas if you can't see the video on that because it just genuinely has not been crashing. You know, what you've seen is some markets have been going down, but with freaking every one of our clients over the last since
0: interest rates have gone up, it's had double-digit growth. So, like, you know, go work that out. It's it's very difficult for the Australian property market to crash. Like, I've just as a thought experiment, I've tried to think how could I make how could I make the Australian property market crash? It's incredibly difficult to do because we have uh, like in the states, the property market can crash because they have non-recourse loans. You have a property that you buy for six hundred thousand dollars, and you have a mortgage. Of six hundred thousand dollars on that property, right? So your LVR is up at <laughs> up at one hundred percent, and then the market goes backwards by say five percent or something like that. So now it's only worth five hundred and seventy thousand. You can you can just rock up to the bank and say there are the keys. You don't you you're you're not liable for that extra thirty grand. Whereas in Australia you are, and in Australia the the way the banks treat mortgages is so much more robust. You don't get those those crazy LVRs. Without there being, you know, a lot of, a lot of confidence the bank has around your ability to pay that back over time, and if you can't, they can go, they can go you, they can bankrupt you, they can, um, and then and then they're chasing you for the cash for the next seven years or whatever it is. So that's, that really props up the property market. Now, I'd be interested. Like, there aren't that many property investors in Australia compared to how many owner occupiers there are. But if we were to take the average suburb in Australia, what uh, what percentage of the dwellings there are rented at the moment? Oh, I don't add that exactly, but but I'll give us a kind of
1: like a general heuristic, right? Probably, if you like map that across the board and somebody is going to shoot me down because I'll know the actual number to this and I'm just making this up.
0: But um, I'd estimate somewhere around the sort of 30% mark. So that means 30% of the property there in Australia, now let's say it's not 30, it might be anywhere between 20 and 40, that's still a massive chunk of the market that is being held as a store of wealth, essentially, and a store of wealth that's going to grow. So when we end up with more money being added to the economy, and there are two basic ways that more money, well, there are three, really. Uh, there's the uh, there's quantitative easing, which pops up now and then when the government really needs it, when there's a big crisis, COVID, etc. There's banks writing loans. Whenever the banks are writing loans, that's pumping more money into the economy because they don't actually need to have the money. That's not how banking works. Like, you know, when you're little and you think, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and get a loan from the bank. And so you go along and, you know, can I, can I borrow five grand for my car or whatever? And you think that the bank has five grand, but they don't have five grand. They just write on it on a, they just, well, they used to write it on a bit of paper. Now they just, you know, some guy out the back just updates the spreadsheet. And- Isn't it funny? It's a sequence
1: of promissory notes, right? It's it's a, it's it's a sequence of promises, right? So you go to the bank and you say, I'm going to promise to pay you. And they say, okay, well, we prom- we'll give you something that says we promise that we'll if needs be, provide you with X amount of dollars. That thing, you then go to someone else and say, you know, and it's just this sequence
0: of promises where no cash exists, no freaking money exists. <laughs> it's like, it's not money. It is kind of like a weird Ponzi scheme, right? Because they're just creating the money out of thin air. So money gets added to the economy that way. And the other way is through uh, trade, right? If we have a trade surplus, then that means that there's, there's, there's more, more cash in Australia. So the money enters the economy and everyone's looking around going, right, well, where do I want to store this? And property has just been the place. It's it's incentivized from a tax perspective. Um, and so it just is the asset class of choice in New Zealand and Australia. And that's why a disproportionate amount of the money that gets printed ends up in property. And so that's what really props up the market. Now, in order to try to crash the Aussie property market, you have to be thinking, right, well, how do I get all of these people in Australia, all of these property investors to decide at the same time that it's not really working for them anymore and that they want to put all of their wealth somewhere else
1: instead. Here's the thing, like, like it would have to be a fundamentally bigger shift than that. Let's just say spontaneously every property investor in Australia said we're all going to sell all at the same time, right? Let's just say hypothetically that could happen. What do, what, what do we actually think would happen in that scenario? Well, there's a very, very pent-up demand of wannabe homeowners, right? And there aren't enough properties for people to buy. So what would probably happen in that scenario is there probably would be some kind of mass market price decline. If if all property investors... Bought, sold all of their properties all at the same time, put them all in the market. There'd be a supply side, um, over, you know, be an oversupply, which would drive down prices. And, but then homeowners would buy, buy, start getting in there and it'd be feverish for homeowners. Ah, oh, now's my time to get in the market. And it'd bang
0: it straight back up again. We don't have an, a, a deficit of demand. And, and how could you even create that situation in Australia where every property investor wants to sell? Like I can think of two situations one is if we discover an asteroid is coming to Earth and it's going to end all of us, and so they want their cash out to go and spend it before boom. Uh, and two is World War Three. Now, if either of those two things happen, you've got bigger problems than, oh, yeah, I need to sell my house.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. And just on the um, trade surplus thing, because that's a really interesting thing about that you pointed out there, is like one of the key indicators of economic growth is like are we – Selling more shit that we're in, than we're importing. Like, are we as a country? Are we making more money than we're spending? That's the easiest way to think about it. Like, do we have do we have more income than expenses? And Australia has been in a monthly trade surplus since January twenty eighteen. That's a pretty long run of monthly trade
0: surplus. It is. It is. That's what I meant when, before when I said Australia is productive, because well you know it depends how you measure productivity if you're measuring it against inflation rates or uh, if you're measuring it against interest rates then we're we're pretty so-so but if you measure it against what we're what we're actually spending it could just be that we we're, we're cleverer and that we spend a lot less than what we produce
1: yeah, G- GDP-wise, pretty good. But I think, like, uh, individual productivity per, per productivity per capita, we've been lacking a little bit. And that's been showing up in some of the um, uh, business conditions. And it's been affecting some of the things like wage growth and stuff like that as well. So I think that's where there's an opportunity for the economy to be improved. And you know, quite frankly, I think it's a good thing. You know, I, I think that um, it would be great for us to see a higher level of productivity uh, in our, you know, workforce broadly because I think that that is good for the economy and I think that, that actually leads to greater opportunities which is actually one of the things one of the reasons I'm, I'm quite bullish on AI I, I think yes I think a lot of people are going to lose their jobs but just in the same way that tractors stole jobs you know in AI can do that too but create new opportunities so I think that AI is actually one of the things that's going to unlock the next level of product productivity growth which will lead to our ability to expand uh, our economy and our gdp which leads to more wealth creation for everyone involved
0: it does that's uh so we're covering the second point that the rba said right the economy will keep growing uh now unemployment will remain low now here we do have the disruptor that you just mentioned of ai how is that going to affect employment in australia i know a few companies that have that have really been hit hard by ai replace replacing a lot of the services that they were providing right particularly around writing. Um, A lot of companies that had a lot of VAs uh, have been able to downsize the VA component and things like that. Now, that's kind of lucky because usually VAs aren't based in Australia. So it's kind of helping companies in Australia. But the more and more like Australia is pretty services-based. and The more service-based economies might take a little bit of a sting there. So with the unemployment will remain low. I, if you'd asked me six months ago, I'd have been, yeah, yeah, obviously. Now with AI, it's... I don't know. You look around Sydney. You look at a whole lot of tall buildings in there, and a whole lot of people wearing white collars. And what are they doing all day that machine learning and AI is not going to be able to take over in two or three years? Yeah, I mean, I, my personal,
1: I think like that level of adoption uh, is going to take longer. Like, I think, I think, I think that the capability for technology to be able to replace a white collar worker may exist now, but for for the Uptake for for that level of change management to happen within organisations, it's going to take a really long period of time. Like organisations don't change very quickly. I mean, we tried to we tried to put a, a new company wide technology system into into dot and it took twelve months and we got nowhere and we gave up because we were just like it's too hard. So like sig- sig- significant technology based change management in larger organisations is really really difficult. Smaller businesses have the ability to be more nimble. And we'll be able to increase, that'll actually help them to increase their productivity per capita far better than a large organization. So a small business is going to be able to go, oh, so let's say we've got one or two or three or five or 10 people in the team, rather than than doubling the team size in order to double the business, maybe we can double the business and only increase the team size by 25% because we can use smarter tools net net that is going to create good outcomes because what that is going to do is that is going to create more value and when value is created it can be transferred so whether that value is is created um and this is where i think wages will rise as well um because as the value gets created in more of these businesses there's going to be more opportunity for businesses to pay their employees better because they're going to have, want good people to stick around and so i call it headwork and handwork. so they're going to have if good people can do smart work and use their brain and contribute and add value, they're going to become more valuable to businesses, not because they can do the thing like dig a hole or send an email. It's because they'll understand, they'll effectively become more rooted in being knowledge workers. They understand how the business works. They understand how the systems works. They understand how to serve the customers. They understand how to do all of that kind of stuff. That inherent knowledge is going to start to become valuable versus just the doing of the tasks and as that becomes more valuable, businesses will have to represent that value much more than just paying people to do jobs. I think that's gonna be be very useful as well. And I think in terms of the the um, unemployment remaining low, I actually think like we've got a tremendous amount of in, uh, immigration coming into Australia, like a huge amount. And it again, these things will take time to evolve. Like, yes, we might find incremental productivity using um, different apps and tools and AI and stuff, but it'll be incremental productivity I don't think it's going to be exponential productivity in the, in the next in the next couple of years not not on a mass market and we also have tons of people coming in wanting work which which drives the which drives the employment market which means that there's more people vying for jobs there's more opportunities for people to 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 get higher wages and also businesses are going to be able to get that kind of incremental productivity expansion grow and need more people so I kind of think that all works in together. Right. All right,
0: I agree with you on all of those points. I think we have essentially there is very strong reasoning behind the RBA's announcements, those the, or their announcement and those four points, right? Very, very strong logic and reasoning that supports a very high probability that they're that they're spot on. We're going to find out over the course of the next twelve months, so you know we can come back and 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 check what we've got here. So, looking at the broader question, then for property investors, what do those four things mean overall for the property market?
1: The same, it's the same thing, and like a risk of like sounding like a broken record, the like interest rates are going to come down, right? I'm very confident about that. Now, historically, interest rates have never gone up for more than, say, 18 months. So we're approaching that period of time now anyway. So when that starts to happen, um, interest rates, as inflation starts to decline, interest rates are likely to decline, which means access to credit, which is far more important than interest rates, access to credit is going to become easier, which means more people can participate in the real estate market, which means demand for real estate is going to go up because more people are going to want to buy. But that is just going to exacerbate the issue of demand outstripping supply. There are more people who want to buy property already. So that is going to drive property prices up more significantly. And then when you combine that with um, low unemployment and rising wages, that's going to mean that people are able, people are going to be more confident and more able to spend more money. So then that actually exacerbates that even more. And so, once you combine that with things like um, with things like uh, immigration and you know all of these other kind of factors, you suddenly have a recipe for very significant property market growth. Now, I just want to put a clarifier on that. That doesn't mean that every property market in Australia is going to burn, right? It never has, and it never will. Even during COVID, yes, that was the, the that was when we had the highest percentage of property markets across the uh, well, not COVID during twenty twenty one more specifically um, the. But that was when we we had the highest percentage of property markets that went up. But they didn't all go up. We didn't have 100% of property property markets going up. There is no Australian property market. There are many markets, right? And so understanding that we have a recipe right now, a concoction that is going to lead to explosive growth is the first thing. The next thing you would need to ask yourself is where is that growth most likely to happen? Because... Some markets are always going, or there is always some markets going up. There are always some markets going down, and there are always some markets that are flatlining. And so, the thing that you need to understand is there is always a good time to buy somewhere, but inversely, there's always there's, there's always a bad time to buy somewhere. So you really need to just understand that. Okay, there is there's a Molotov cocktail coming for the property market. What you need to do is work out what markets are most likely to explode off the back of that. So that you can position position yourself for success.
0: Yep, hundred percent, and that leads us into sort of what we do at Dashdot a little bit. Yeah, it does. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> 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 well, I mean, well, I mean, well, okay. I'm I've been working. Do you, do you want me to do a, a bit of a um, a little bit of? Well, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people understand what we do, but I think like you know,
1: find, let me kind of expand on it a little bit more because there's there's a there might be a bit of a misconception about about Dashdot, right? Um Dashdot is not a property buying service. A lot of people think, "Oh, buyers agents, go buy me a house." But fu- like yeah, I mean that's a, we do that bit, right? But fundamentally there's actually a far broader question that we've we've sought to solve for individuals, you know, and this serves our broader mission. And that is to help is to help people find the right property in the right place at the right time. The unique thing about that statement is that no two people are the same which necessarily means that the right property in the right place at the right time for me might not be the right property in the right place at the right time for you. But that also doesn't mean that it's random. So we'll just find, you know, so you've got to then overlay that with this idea that there are some markets which are the prime time to invest in and other markets which are not. And the nuance between those those markets can be really, really small. In fact, one of our uh, team members, Nick, uh, I was talking to him the other day about his property purchases. He's, pro- he's purchased a few properties through Dash Dot and they've all gone exceptionally well, like just phenomenally well, except for one when he decided he was going to go against some of Dot's rules and buy in a suburb that was just next to some of the suburbs who were buying in. And he was like, no, 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 this is good. And he had his own thesis, and yep. which was, con- which was like contrary to the yep, – Yeah, close enough. Yeah, he's like, no, nah, I want to buy it now. Yeah, yeah 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 and he openly said he goes you know he, he threw away the dash dot rule book even though he helps clients do the thing but he just got his own ego got in the way he did the thing that we and how and he i spoke to him two days ago about this and he said man it's been a dog it's before it's performed just like any average joe would buy a property and it perform it hasn't done anything and i've done everything i can think to try and get that thing to make money and it's basically just it's a dead fish so i'm just going to get rid of it now that that was the same general location, adjacent suburb, slightly different area. And it was a nice area too. He thought nice area, nice, you know. And so you sort of got to like break through all this kind of stuff. So it all starts with developing a plan because unless you've got a plan, how do you know you're going to succeed? Because a great property for Nick might not be a great property for me. Right. And so, h- working out how to get from where you are now to where you want to be is not just a, a, a case of, I'm going to go buy 10 houses in 10 years. It could be five properties in five years, or it could be you start with the $200,000 property and end with the $1 million property, or it could be you start with a $1 million property and end with 20, $200,000 properties. And so, understanding what that journey looks like is really, really critical. So, the way that we approach that is to first build a plan. So you start with building a portfolio growth plan, then you execute the plan, and then you keep updating the plan because you have like a, a forecast versus actual, and then you just keep mapping that and off you go. Fundamentally, understanding how to take people through that journey is the secret source. That's the thing that we help do. Now, we've developed technology to identify the right property in the right place at the right time, and then we've developed technology to build a personalized plan based on the individual's circumstances and needs. That's, that's how we provide a holistic approach to kind of solving this macro problem, helping people to escape the status quo.
0: So based on what the RBA has said, the logic that you can put behind it, and it's stuff that you've been saying for ages now i don't know how many podcasts it's sort of popped up on dozens where, where you've been talking about these exact predictions we can be very like we can be extremely con- uh, confident very very confident that there's a lot of heat that's going to go into the property market pretty soon that heat is not going to be uniformly distributed across every property in fact it's going to be all over the place it's going to be like like when you microwave a lasagna and it's like, you know, you pull it out and it's like, you know, okay, that part's still got, you know, that's that part's still frozen. This part nearly took the roof of my mouth off. That part's kind of warm. That part's kind of cold. It's just like that, right? That's what the property market's going to look like. But we know that overall, it's a lot hotter than it was before it went into the microwave, right? So what what I find extraordinary is the depth that the technology goes into. Like I was talking to Julian. Uh, who's the um, who's my main tech contact, and, gee, is that guy smart. And he was going through how many variables, like 500 variables, and then it's, it's whittled down to 60 that are significant, and 30 of those are actually custom data sets that Dot creates from existing stuff out there and running it through the algorithm so that you can pinpoint with laser precision which locations are going to be ideal. So that's like being able to look at the lasagna without needing to put your fork in, <laughs> and just being able to say, yeah, I know that part's super hot. I know that part's still gonna be frozen. And, and that is massively valuable. So we know that the property market's gonna go through the roof overall. We know the specific locations or the technology can, can show us, right? And it's, it's a robust algorithm, right? It's, the, the idea of those is to make it as absolutely objective as possible. Right. Because uh, an algorithm like that doesn't doesn't pay commissions, it doesn't pay fees, it just spits out data and then take that data that tells us which locations have the highest levels of confidence that they are the ones that are going to go that are going to go through the roof and then identifying the right properties within those locations for an individual uh, investor. How close was that? That's pretty much pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. That's that's the nuance,
1: right? And so, the whole mission since twenty twenty nineteen when we started was, you know, firstly we wanted to help people to build wealth and create freedom. And then when people started paying us money, we were like, "Holy smokes! What if we get this wrong?" And so, ever ever since then, it's just been a continuous quest to get it more and less and less likely to be wrong. Right is the best way to think about it. And so. If you continuously optimize away from failure, you end up in a place where you're massively successful, and that's why that's why we've got basically pretty close to a hundred percent success rate of, of of what we do. And that's like and not just a success of like people have moved on; people have not gone backwards. It's like you know the average returns that our clients are getting are you know bonkers. You know, I think the average the average return on invested capital in the first 12 months is like 67% and that's been true every year for the last four years that's not just that's not just like oh well if we average it out and we include 2021 it's like <laughs> yeah. no it's like it's yeah. like no it, that it's was the number on, yeah. in 20 yeah that was a number in 2019 that was a number in 2020 that was a number in 2021 that was a number in 2022 so you know you start to see a pattern where it starts to hold true in uh, well over 150 suburbs now and about 1000 property purchases like it's not we did something once and that's good. It's like, no, we've built a systematic approach to being able to do this. And the whole thing is we've been future planning. The whole thing, like even three years ago, we were like, well, it's cool that we can find good properties now, but like what's next? What's the economy going to do next? Like well, broadly speaking, great. We've, we've... Yeah, but yeah, but like things will change. And so like broadly speaking, uh, regional markets have performed quite well over the last few years. Now, and so... Necessarily, we've been buying in regional markets. It doesn't mean that I've got a regional market bias. But what it does mean is you then need to go, well, is that going to be the case forever? Could it switch to capital city markets? Could desired asset types change? Could people go from desiring um, you know, standalone houses to units? So, not, so you have to then start teasing out these thesis, uh, theses, for, for, or theses for where the market could potentially go and then develop technology that's going to be able to understand that so that you can remain adaptable. Because the, the worst thing that I've seen is people will find something that works in one market and they can't adapt it like the amount of people years ago that were like, uh, you know, oh yeah, we're going to renovate for profit. G- great. Until like the specific market conditions that support that uh, strategy change. And then what? Yeah. I spoke to somebody a couple of years ago and their whole strategy was to um, find properties in capital cities that you could subdivide and subdivide and build on them, which is a totally fine. Not absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's a It's a great strategy when that suits the environment because he came to me and he said, the environment's changed. It was, you know, supply side, we can't build all the costs have gone out and they're no longer profitable. And now we don't have a property investment strategy because the one thing that we believed worked now doesn't work. And so the the, the only way to be a really successful investor is to continue to think about where is the market going and how do you position yourself strategically, economically, emotionally to be able to adapt to those changing environments so you can continue to find success. And the best way to do that is to remain strategy
0: ag- agnostic or, sorry, tactic agnostic and to work with a consistent strategy. And what I find... Like, even though interest rates have been super high over, well, relatively high, not like 1980s high, but they've been very high compared to anything we've had over the last couple of decades, right? And looking at those, and that should be a tough market for property investors. And yet, I keep seeing the returns that dot investors get, you know, it's like, over the last nine months, 11.3% or 14% or, or 22% over the last, like, 16 months, something like that. Those are massive, and you're sort of thinking, oh, geez, I wish I could have, I wish I'd picked that one up or picked up something like that 18 months ago but you can now and looking at what the rba is saying it's only going to get better so those people that got in 18 months ago well done you know it, it's a ballsy move in in that sort of uh in that sort of economic environment to jump in then to to trust the process to trust the numbers to trust the data and say yep yeah, okay this all makes sense to go for it, and it's paying off for them now. Now things are about to get a whole lot better for property investors. Yeah, 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 yeah. And
1: and and there are a bunch. There are millions of people that are about to jump off the fence and get into the market. And your ability to get a jump start on that is the is yeah, yeah. going to be a, a yeah, whole that's, market success. That's hundreds success. of thousands
0: of dollars right there.
1: A hundred percent. I just want to. Um, I know we've got to wrap up in a second, but I also just wanted to ping this back to the the economic discussion that we were having as well because. A lot of people hear in the news things like, oh, the economy's going to crash and stuff like that. I mean, I hear just, I don't watch the news. So the only way I know what's happening in the news is because I hear what people tell me is what happens, what's happening in the news. And the amount of people recently that have said things like, are we about to have an economic crash and all of this kind of stuff? And it's like, I just want to point out that the GDP per capita, right, which is the gross domestic product per capita, which is effectively the economic value per individual in a country is the highest it has ever been by a significant long shot right now. Like, we're in ostensibly the best economic health we've been in in some time. But everyone looks at the interest rates and goes, oh, interest rates are up, everything's bad. It's like, the economy is rock solid. The economy's caning it. Interest rates are just up to tame down inflation.
0: It's all good. the, (laughs) the, The underlying fundamentals are there. And I've got to take my hat off. Like, for a long time, I didn't understand... Why the RBA would make particular moves, and you'd, you'd be trying to you'd be trying to invest in a property, right? And they come out, and the number of forms that you had to do, because even though interest rates were low, the government was smart enough. And I'm not a I'm not a pro government guy, right? I pretty much hate every government, but they but, and so they suddenly all of these new banking um, constraints uh, on credit. They're really annoying when you're a property investor because you're thinking, well, shit, you know, ah, oh, it's it's so much harder to get a loan now than it was, say, in in like uh, 2010, right? 2010 rock up 105%. Yeah, sure. (laughs) It's like, it's, it's fantastic. And so now, now that's sort of like, oh, no, you need, you need 20%, you need 30% or whatever, or, you know, there have been times when it's been like that and you need to fill out all of this. So they've been smart enough to create that constraint on access to credit. And at the time it's annoying, but when you look at how well that's protected the economy, that, that I think has been really, really key.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Emil, we're going to wrap it up because I'm going to jump into another meeting, but this has been, again, another great conversation. Let's do it again soon. Thanks, really Chris. appreciate it. Speak
0: soon. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Bye. See you. Bye.